Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, as I said, we are in Mark chapter 7. Uh, and just for context, let me just remind you of this. We are in the final year of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, we know that because that time when he fed the 5,000, it tells us the Passover was near or was at hand, it actually says. And the very next Passover is when he's going to give his life. So we, we know that we're in the final year of his life. And uh, we are probably approaching the final six months of his life. Uh, even though we're relatively early in the book of Mark, chapter 7, so we're only about halfway through the book, we are in the final uh, months of Jesus's life here. And as I've been pointing out, Jesus has transitioned away from sort of going into the synagogue, teaching a lesson, almost, if you will, hoping that the, the Jewish people will respond. He's transitioned away from that. He's moved out of the synagogue and onto the streets. And he's dealing with the masses of people. And at the same time, he's dealing with that smaller group of his disciples. Those that are going to, if you will, think of it this way, take over when he is off of uh, the scene. So his ministry focus has shifted to those individuals. And as we begin our look this morning at verse 24 and following, we're going to notice that Jesus's various attempts to get away, remember we've been talking about that? He, he tries to get away, just have some time with his disciples, and then the whole crowd runs around the, the Sea of Galilee and meets him. And it doesn't seem like he's able to have that time away with them. Well, Jesus takes that desire to get away to a whole nother level. And he leaves his phone at home, so to speak. And he's not going to be checking his email or his text and stuff. And he's going to make his way, look at verse 24 for a moment, to Tyre and Sidon. Well, maybe, there it is. Uh, to Tyre and Sidon. He goes there because he did not want anyone to know where he was. Tyre and Sidon was completely outside of the area of Israel. It's close to the area of Israel. But because of mountainous terrain and things like that, it was very difficult to get to from the area of Israel. So it was a whole separate another world. Even though it was only about 50 miles away, it was just this different world. And it was not a non-Jewish place, and that's the area that Jesus is going to go to, the region, as it says there, of Tyre and Sidon. Two cities, there's another city, Beirut today, we call it Beirut. Those three cities in that area of Phoenicia, uh, it's a region, but they became known by those particular names. That's where Jesus is going to make his way to, a place where he can finally get some away time from the crowds. That's a, there's a sermon there, isn't there? This time of year, you just want to get away from the crowds. Let's go on. Uh, you're like, no, nah, not really. I like crowds. All right, verse 24. From there he arose. He went away to the region of Tyre inside, and he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, probably with a smile, for this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home, and she found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, as I've been pointing out, there's parallel passages to a lot of these stories. Valuable for us to look at because there's little teeny insights that one of the gospel writers picks up that maybe the other one didn't center on. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 to 30 is the only other parallel passage we have for this story where Jesus 
interacts with a woman of remarkable faith, a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman, as it says there, and he's moved by her faith. Read again, Matthew chapter 15, and you can get a little more insight into this. If you have a Bible that has headings, it probably says something like the Syrophoenician woman's faith. You have something like that, the Syrophoenician woman's faith? All right, let me show you a map here. Do we have that map? I think we do. Here's a little map. You'll notice on the left-hand side the words that are written in red. Uh, the lower one is Tyre. The upper one there is Sidon. Now that area, see on the right side where it says, kind of in the middle, it says Syria. Syria is where they get the word Syro. And so that area that is up there, it's outside of Israel. The two, two of the largest cities, if you go all the way up to the very top of that map, you see Beirut. And we know Beirut, it's in the news today, up there in Lebanon. And so that particular region of Tyre, Sidon, and Beirut, the three largest cities in that area of, that region of Phoenicia, which is a part of the Syria region, all right? And so uh, just to give you an idea of where we are, you can look at that map as well. Notice uh, where the Sea of Galilee is. It's that blue dot toward the bottom of the map there, okay? So again, this is about 50 miles or so away from the area of Capernaum. But the problem is, the difficulty is, it's a very mountainous region between Tyre and between Capernaum. So there was very little passageway that went through there. It was difficult to make your way from the one place to the other. And so, though they were somewhat close to one another, they had very little interaction with one another. All right, you catching all this? So again, Jesus wants to get away. I, I think that's his main, one of his main purposes for going there. I think, so that's the first one, to get away. Number two... If you think about the context of where we were last week, Jesus just did this, uh, it wasn't a study, um, he just had this situation where the religious leaders came to him and said, why do your disciples not eat with uh, ceremonially washed hands? And that led Jesus into this conversation about clean and unclean, remember that? Well, that was clean and unclean food. Here now he's going to, if you will, deal with clean and unclean people. And of course, who are the clean people? The Jews, who are the unclean people? The Gentiles. Well, that was the thinking. And Jesus is going to address that. He's going to deal with that in this particular, the next two particular accounts that we have. The first one of this woman with the remarkable faith, and the next one of a fellow that was deaf and unable to um, speak clearly. And so we have this woman. Let's dig in uh, to her a little bit. Verse 24, and from there he rose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, entering, and he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, and yet he could not be hidden. Notice in verse 24, Jesus enters a house. Now, if we're in a Gentile region, then the owner of this house must be Jewish? A Gentile. Is a Gentile, uh, the owner of this home here. This is a Gentile home here that Jesus is going to make his way. Now, tradition would say a faithful Jew would never go into the home of a Gentile. Extreme tradition would say that a faithful Jew wouldn't really have any interaction with a Gentile. And yet Jesus not only has interaction with them, he goes into the home of these as well. And so whereas in the previous incident, and again, if you weren't here last week, just read the beginning portion of chapter 7, where in the previous incident he deals with clean and unclean food, here now he's dealing with clean and unclean people. And he's wiping away, if you will, that difference, that there aren't no such thing, essentially, is what he's going to say. Now, notice in verse 24, it says, and he could not be hidden. For a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came to him. 
Now, I think there's a couple of ways that you can see this. One is simply word filtered out, and he tried to be hidden, but he couldn't. They found him anyway. And that's more of like an external, he could not be hidden. I think there's also an internal, he could not be hidden. And what I mean by that is a need arose, and Jesus had to meet that need. You ever been in that situation? I'm done, I'm off, I'm not getting involved, I'm staying out of it, I'm on vacation, and yet a need arises and you're just motivated, I gotta jump in, I gotta help. You think of paramedics and doctors and things like that, and it's their day off, and yet there's that problem, there's that need, and they jump in, they, they are compelled to have to jump in. We saw that when Jesus went away, and then there are the 5,000, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what's the scripture say happened in Jesus? It says he was moved with compassion. He was moved. He was stirred with compassion. He had to do it. No one forced him to do it. He had to do it. Uh, even when the disciples were saying, send everyone else away. There was a human need, and it appealed to Jesus' heart, and he met that need. Does that story sound familiar? Especially this season? That's the Christmas story, isn't it? The Christmas account, there is no more succinct, succinct statement to the season than that. That there was a human need and Jesus was moved to meet that human need. That's the entire reason for the incarnation. You and I, sinners. Amen? You're slow on that one there. We're sinners. And Jesus Christ was not a sinner. Jesus is not better because we're believers. It's not like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm more satisfied because people actually worship me and appreciate me. He's not any better because we have come into his kingdom. He is who he is. And he's totally good where he is. And yet, he was moved by our problem to come to this earth to solve that problem. Just like we see in this particular passage here, he was moved. He could not be hidden. Now we go on. It says, now immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, she heard of him. And she came and she fell down at his feet. Now here is where it's helpful to go to Matthew. Because in the Matthew passage, it tells us, that she is spending her time crying out after Jesus. So the, the picture is that they're out in the streets there or something like that, and she's calling out to him, you know, would you help me, would you help me, would you help me? And it says in that Matthew passage, 1523, that the disciples once again, what are they saying? Send her away, make her go away, make her stop. This is our vacation, you know, all these kinds of things. And interesting, in that Matthew passage, notice it says there, and he did not answer her a word. It seems almost like he's ignoring her. And she's crying out, yelling and yelling. Finally, the disciples are like, just make her go away. And Jesus now uh, isn't ignoring her. Even though they say to send her away, he's not going to send her away. He's going to deal with her. Now, on initial observation, it seems rude that Jesus is ignoring her. Doesn't that seem surprising? What kind of a Jesus is that? Not my Jesus, as some would like to say. How could he be ignoring her? Secondly, how does he respond to her? Well, look in uh, the Mark passage there. He responds by essentially calling her a dog. Now, I learned very young that you don't call girls a dog. Right? right? It's, it's synonymous. When I was young, it, it was synonymous with meaning she's ugly or something like that. And so you never say, you can say a lot of things about her, but don't call her a dog kind of thing. And yet Jesus here essentially equates her with a dog. He says, let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now that might offend someone. It might offend her. It doesn't, as we're going to see in the next verse or so, it doesn't offend her. 
But one could see how she could easily be offended, essentially saying, look, I'm not going to throw the children's bread to a dog lady. So why are you asking me for these things? Again, seems pretty offensive. But notice verse 28. She doesn't say, who are you calling a dog? Or anything like that. She doesn't get huffy. She doesn't get all bothered by it. She just simply says, ah, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So she calls herself a dog, essentially, here. And so whether or not she was offended, I kind of expect a little more from Jesus. First, you don't ignore people. Number two, don't call them dogs, even if you don't mean anything by it here. And so I suspect more is happening, right? If I know he shouldn't be doing this, I'm sure he knows he shouldn't be doing this as well. So I think there's a little more that is going on that we may not see at our first pass here. Number one, as Mark points out, this woman is a Gentile woman, right? She's a Syrophoenician. She's a Syrophoenician from birth, as it says there. Now, dogs were unclean animals to the Jews. The book of Leviticus tells us that. But they were not unclean animals to the Gentiles. Okay, so that's number one. So, for instance, if I called you a snake, you're a snake. I probably had a face, too. Uh, sorry about that. But if I just called you a snake, I, I'm probably not saying something nice about you, right? You're a scoundrel, you dirty, rotten snake there. If I called you a teddy bear, what do I want from you? I probably want a hug, all right, because you're a teddy bear. And that's a nice expression. That's a nice thing. And so where in the Jew's mind to be called a dog might be extremely offensive, to this young lady, it's not necessarily. It's the connotation, all right? So that's the first thing. Number two, there are different words used in the New Testament for dog. One of the words, I'm not even going to bother trying to pronounce the Greek. I don't know Greek. I just look it up in the Strong's Concordance. But one of the words that is used for dog refers to a wild street dog. All right? So what we might call a street dog, that were a menace to society. As I was writing this, I was remembering when we did this in Matthew, I, I had mentioned how in Ewing we used to have a street dog problem. Some of you that are older have been around Ewing for a while. And these dogs were running around town, packs of them, and they were killing pets and things like that. My good buddy put his dog out on the leash and it got killed. It was, that's not funny. <laughs> what are you laughing at? It was terrible or whatever. And so, that, yeah, the, we had a wild dog problem. Remember up at Halo Farms, they had all the, um, the what are those things, cows that were there? Now they're like these fake statues. That's because like on three different occasions, they were killed by the dogs, these wild dogs or whatever. It's crazy or whatever. Where are we living? You know, so they dealt with the problem or whatever. That's the first type of dog. There's a Greek word in the New Testament that describes that kind of dog. Then there's a second Greek word that is used, completely different word, and it refers to like a small lap dog or it refers to a puppy. And those little puppy dogs, and not necessarily puppies all their lives, obviously, but those little tiny dogs... The Gentiles, and no doubt in this community as in all the other Gentile communities, just like we do, kept them in their homes. And so they were pets. They were friendly. They were part of the family and things like that. Cute, cuddly. They played with the children. I want to give you a difference here. I think a picture nails it. Here's the first picture. This is the first type of dog. Okay? Here's the second type of dog. Huh? Huh? Would you mind being called that? No. Even the cute little puppies, you know, we don't take the food. And so that's it. So this woman, and these are the actual photos from the Bible. Um, we have the actual photos. This woman, she's not offended, okay, by Jesus here. Notice she plays along, again, in verse 28, she plays along. Yes, Lord, she says, even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs. And so what's going on here? What is Jesus doing? Why is he initially ignoring her? 
as she's crying out, and then telling her he's not going to help her because, you know, I, the children, etc. And then he goes on and helps her after she comes back with a playful response. What's going on? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that what's going on is Jesus is drawing her out. He's drawing her out. So she makes her initial appeal. And again, notice Mark, he's careful to point out that she's a Syrophoenician woman. And so to, describe, to say that is to describe not only where she's from, but what she is from. It describes the community that she grew up in. As it says there, she has been a Syrophoenician since birth. Because the Syrophoenicians, they're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're separate from the Jews. They were worshipers of the deity Astarte. Or, as we see other places in the Bible, Asherah. Remember the Baal and the Asherah pole and those things? Or Ashtoreth, you've heard that name. In Greek uh, mythology and thinking, this is Aphrodite. You've heard that name maybe from your studies of literature and things like that. And so Aphrodite, Astarte, Asherah, all of the same individual, was the Phoenician goddess, and it's not a real individual, just what they came up with, but it was the Phoenician goddess of love and the goddess of fertility. Okay, And that was sort of the, the hometown deity for these particular people. And as the goddess of love and fertility, you could probably imagine, though we're not going to do that, but you can probably imagine the way they worshiped and served their deity. And that's this community that this particular woman, she grew up with in it. And so this little inclusion here uh, that Mark provides for us, that she is a Syrophoenician, it's an indicator to us that she comes from a pagan religion and that she had been raised in that pagan religion since she was born, it says there, from birth, since she was a child. And yet, notice, in desperation, even though she has her own religion, in desperation, what does she do? She comes to Jesus. Because she's realizing the inadequacies of her religion. That it's not meeting the need that she has. And, and in her desperation, she's willing to put that religion aside so that she can come to get deliverance for her daughter. And I'm sure, if she comes to Jesus, I'm sure she no doubt prayed her prayers many times to her deity. And her deity never came through for her. Deliverance never came. And so she comes here, as it says, to Jesus. And she's not a Jew. And yet, notice what she calls Jesus in verse 22. She calls him the son of David, which is a messianic expression of whom? The Jewish people. And so somehow she sort of learns this term, this phrase that people are saying that this guy is the Messiah. My sense is that she comes sort of on her best behavior. Sometimes when I'm out and about and people find out that I'm a pastor, their uh, demeanor changes a little bit. They suddenly kind of cross their arms or something like this. And I don't know what it is, but all of a sudden they change a little. I think her, she's trying to be on her best behavior. If I call him by the wrong name, I might offend him, and then he'll never help me with my daughter. And so she goes out of character, so to speak, out of the Syrophoenician character, and she calls out to Jesus, and she refers to him by the messianic term, son of David. I think she's trying to be polite and not wanting to prevent, uh, to uh, offend him so that he will indeed heal his, her daughter. She goes on to explain that she comes, uh, Mark goes on to explain that she comes, and notice it says that she begins to beg Jesus. She's been crying out, she's begging to Jesus, please cast this demon out of my daughter. Now, again, I, it's out on the road somewhere, 
I picture on one side of the road, Jesus sort of wandering down the middle of the road with uh, his entourage around him a little, and she's yelling out, she's crying out. They're saying, send her away, send her away. She's begging, Jesus stops. Now, rabbis in that day, as Jesus was, were not supposed to speak to any woman in public. There's even references, um, some of the, the Jewish leaders, they didn't even speak to their wife in public. And so not only is Jesus willing to stop and speak with this woman, but she's a Gentile woman, so he's going to stop and he's going to meet with this Gentile woman and speak with her, and he engages her. So as she cries out to him, he stops, doesn't give her a head nod and a wave, he stops and he talks with her. And as we said again, he says, let the children be fed first. It's not right to give their bread and throw it to the dogs. Now the children, in the context of things, is whom? It's the Jewish people. I don't know if you answered that, but that's the answer, all right? And during Jesus' earthly life, we're reading the Gospels, we're almost to the end of his earthly life here, the last six months or so. During his earthly life, Jesus' primary ministry was to whom? The Jewish people, okay? As he says in that Matthew passage there, he says, I was sent only to the sheep, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Same context, same story. It's just words that we don't have included in the Mark passage. That was his primary ministry, is to deal with and to interact with and to work with and to call the Jewish people to the place of repentance. And Jesus now is saying to her, look, my primary ministry is to the Jewish people. Almost exclusively, that's who he ministered to. Now, of course, we do see examples of him almost, um, almost kind of by accident, you know, he's sort of out and about. Uh, incidentally, he comes into contact with a Gentile, and he ministers to that individual. But primarily, his ministry was to the Jews. But despite all that, this woman, she's heard about Jesus. And we're not told how she's heard about Jesus. We're just told that she's heard about Jesus. I'm going to put up on the screen here. Back in chapter 3, early on in that chapter, we read this. Now, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. So this is early on when Jesus has gotten out of the synagogue and he's out in the streets. And Mark is sort of uh, tying it and wrapping it up in a bow, so to, speak, so to speak. He's presenting this idea that the masses were coming. Now notice it says a great crowd followed, some from Galilee, some from Judea, some from Jerusalem, some from Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And so there were people that live in this community where this woman lives that had been interacting uh, with Jesus, watching Jesus, observing Jesus. This woman's not one of them because it doesn't say like she, I remember that time I saw you before. It says she had heard of him. And so these guys, they had come back into town. They were talking about this fellow that they saw. I picture it this way that, you know, maybe it was two years earlier. There was this guy. He was amazing. It was wonderful. And the people are like, wow, that's very interesting. You know, how about that? That's something. Then Jesus comes into town. And one of those or two of those or a few of those folks that had seen Jesus way over by the Galilee, they're like, remember that guy I told you about two weeks? I saw him. He's in this town. And she hears that, and perhaps there's a glimmer of hope where there hadn't been hope. Her daughter is demon-possessed. No doubt she called out to her deity, as every one of us people in the world do when they are down and out and there's nowhere else to go. They cry out to their God, whatever that God may be, and no answer came, and now there's this glimmer of hope. The man who healed so many elsewhere is here in this town. Maybe he'll hear my daughter. And so she hears the report. She goes to find Jesus. She begins to beg Jesus. 
One of the things about this woman that we should take notice of and learn a lesson from this woman is her perseverance and her persistence in faith. And so she's first persistent in that despite the fact that her deity could never bring healing to her daughter, she hasn't given up hope that her daughter will one day be healed. And so she continues on. She's persistent in that regard. Secondly, despite the disciples' attempt to keep her away from Jesus, despite the disciples' attempt and even them saying, send her away, send her away, she's probably right standing there. You know, and yet they're saying, send her away, send her away. Despite that, she continues to pursue the Lord. And she calls him the son of David. She says, please heal my daughter. And then thirdly, when Jesus initially shuts the door on her, and he says, it's not right for me to give the bread of the children to the dogs, she refuses to take no for an answer. And she comes back at him. She's persistent in her faith. That's a valuable lesson for every one of us, particularly as we think about our prayer lives. And as we come to the Lord and we're persistent in our prayers for what we want the Lord to do in our lives or through our lives. So one commentator I read, he said this, she realized as Jesus slammed the door, she realized that the door was swinging on its hinges. And that picture reminded me of when you go to a restaurant and you see those doors that they can go both directions or whatever. And so he shut the door and she realized it could be pushed right back open again. She said, even the dogs eat up the crumbs under the table. And she's persevering. She's saying these words so much. She says, look, I know the children eat first. I know the children are fed first. But can't I even get the scraps that the children throw away and don't want? And Jesus here, his response, uh, he's, he's moved by that. He's blessed by that. That's why I said as I was reading it, I, I imagine that a smile comes over his face. His initial response sounds like a refusal, but in reality, I think what Jesus is doing is he's inviting her to go deeper. He's stretching her a bit here. And so again, his initial answer might sound rude and it might sound harsh, but notice again, she's not offended. And Jesus now is drawing her to himself and he's drawing from her an expression both of humility and of faith in order that not only will the daughter be healed, but that she'll be eternally healed as well. Do you see that there? And so he's drawing out from her humility. And the humility aspect of things is that she will acknowledge she has no right to the thing for which she asks. And isn't that the place where faith begins, Christian? We have no right to the thing of which we ask. We deserve death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so she comes to Jesus and she says all the right words, son of David. She's got her hands folded. She's being a good girl and all that. And if Jesus brings healing to her daughter, well, in some respects, she's earned healing, hasn't she? By being really good and playing the game. And the reality is Jesus, he draws her out to the point where she has no right even to ask. And he also draws out her faith that in spite of the fact that she has no right to ask, she will ask nonetheless. There's a lot of people in our world that don't know they're sinners, doubt that they're sinners, but there's a lot of people in our world that know that they're sinners, and they know that they deserve judgment. That's a good place, isn't it? But they never look any further to the gift of salvation. Almost as if I have no right to ask for the gift of salvation. Absolutely. That is our message. It is a gift. 
And Jesus is drawing this woman. He's drawing her to the place of humility. He's drawing her to the place of faith. She comes back at him. She says, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs. There are a lot of commentators that say Jesus was moved by her wit. He, you got spunk, you know, and, and he said, all right, I'll do it. I like you, you know, this kind of thing. Maybe, maybe he likes that about her. But what Jesus really likes about her is her faith. And he says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Now, notice the Matthew passage here, because that could go either way. Man, I like you. You got spunk. Um, It could go that way. But look at Matthew chapter 15. Jesus said this, O woman, great is your faith. That's what really moved the Lord. Great is your faith. Jesus found faith in this woman. He confirmed faith in this woman. He commended faith in this woman. That it was a great and a remarkable faith. And he rewards her instantly. He heals her daughter. He doesn't have to go to the daughter's house. He doesn't have to go touch the daughter, speak to the daughter, or anything like that. He just says, go home. Your daughter has been healed. Verse 30, and she went home and she found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Here we are, again, the setting. This isn't a nice Jewish community. This is a pagan community a pagan environment, and Jesus finds faith in that community, and he lovingly refined that faith. You see that? Because just the fact that this was a woman that wouldn't give up, and she persevered, and she had sort of this faith, that's nice, but that's not enough, because it could have been faith in the wrong thing. She could have gone down and lit her candle every single day of the week, uh, or whatever, to her deity, that maybe that deity would bring healing, and she was a persevering woman, but she had faith in the wrong thing. And so Jesus goes into this pagan environment and he refines her faith so that she can come to the place of believing in him. Jesus had come to his own, the Jewish people, and the vast majority of his own had rejected him. But here is a woman, a Gentile woman, that received him. As I'm thinking of that, I'm reminded of these words, John chapter 1. It says, now Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. To all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, not Jewish, nor the will of man, but they were born of God. That's this woman. To all who did receive him. She's one of the first of the Gentile people whom Jesus extends his hand that they too might become a child of God. And she's this woman who makes a venture because of her conviction, because of her faith, and begins a relationship with Jesus Christ. The point that I want to draw with this, some of us come from some backgrounds. And some of us are fortunate. We're raised in a Christian home, and we, we discover the Lord maybe, or we, we know things about the Lord at a very, very young age, and we're very fortunate and we're very blessed. And that's, I, ultimately, I think that's God's desire, is that we would raise godly offspring. But a lot of us in here, we don't have a nice, wonderful background like that. Amen? And we come out of some difficult things, and we've seen some difficult things, and we're from perhaps a pagan environment, much like this particular one is. Notice, despite her background, it doesn't prevent her from coming to the place of faith. And so what I love about this church, there's a lot of messy people here. All right, I'm looking at you. No, I mean, we got some backgrounds amongst us, but look at what God is doing. Look how he's working in our lives. Look how he's using us in the lives of other people. The Lord is faithful. And whenever a soul, whatever its background may be, however pagan that background may be, whenever a soul seeks the Lord for truth, as verse 24 says, Jesus Christ cannot be hidden. 
And that person, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart, the scripture says. Amen? amen. All right, now the story's not over. All right, that amen is not our closing amen. That's our middle of the passage amen. <laughs> Jesus is not done. Look at verse 31. It says, he returned now from the region of Tyre and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and he had a speech impediment. And they begged him, Jesus, to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Ephatha, which is, be opened. And the man's ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more Jesus charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. I want to show you a map here. Again, same map as we had before. Do we have that? All right, there's this particular map. Now, looking at verse 31, and don't put that on the screen. Keep the map up there, Kev, if you would. Um, ordering poor Kevin around. Thank you, Kevin, for all you do. All right, very good. And so look at verse 31 in your Bibles. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Okay, you see that there? Now, he's in Tyre. And he goes about 20 miles north to Sidon, and then he comes about 40 miles south to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Does that seem like the most direct route? It's not the most direct route at all. And so it's either because of the mountainous terrain between the two, or it's because Jesus doesn't want to run into any Jewish people on the way. And they stacked the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And so, again, I think this speaks to this idea that Jesus is essentially trying to avoid interaction and contact with the Jewish people. But he has an appointment. He's got to get to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, or as it says in our versions here, verse 31, in the region, to the region of the Decapolis, uh, as you look there at verse 31. Now, you remember the Decapolis. Deca, ten, Capolis, metropolis, city, the ten cities, Gentile cities, uh, that weren't side by side with one another. They were 10 independent Gentile cities in and around the area of Israel. We go to one of them when we, uh, when we go to Israel. It's called Bet Shean. And you, you get a sense of how distinct uh, a Roman-influenced city is, a Gentile city is, from a Jewish city. These little villages that the Jews had, very ornate structure there in the Gentile cities. And so they were scattered all about. And we've learned a little bit about Decapolis already. You remember that Decapolis was the location of the man that was filled with many demons. And Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee, and this man who was living among the tombs and cutting himself, and they would put chains on him, he'd break him, comes running to Jesus. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Uh, I know who you are and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus cast the demon out of that man. And he's clothed, and he's sitting in his right mind. His life has been transformed. He says, I want to go with you. Take me with you. I want to go and tell other people what God has done in my life. And Jesus says to him, no. You remember all this. Mark uh, chapter 5 is where we read it. Jesus says this. Jesus does not permit him, but he said, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. That was the last time that Jesus was there in the area of the Decapolis. Now, you recall, and I bring it up, because after Jesus had healed this man 
and then gave him instructions to go home, uh, during that whole interaction, the crowds came running out to Jesus. And they essentially said to Jesus, go home. Get out of here. We don't want you here. You freak us out. You scare us that you can do the things that you did. And so they tell him to leave. And verse, chapter 5, verse 20, it tells us that's what Jesus did. Jesus departed. And he began, uh, the man departed. Jesus went his way and the man departs and he goes his own way. Notice what it says there. He departed, he began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done from him, for him and the people marveled. So the last time the crowds of the Decapolis had interaction with Jesus, they were forcing Jesus away. Notice now what is happening here. Now Jesus returns and they, same people of the Decapolis, brought a man who was deaf had a and had a speech impediment and they begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. Like the Syrophoenician woman who begged that Jesus would heal uh, her daughter, you have this group of Gentile people begging Jesus to heal this particular man. There had been a change in their thinking, hasn't there? There was a big change, a big shift in their thinking from get out of here to we're so glad you're here. And the thing that is in between is the man who went and told people what God had done for him. This man's testimony. Isn't that something? Look at the impact this one man had as he told his story of what God did in his life and how that impacted an entire region of people. Your words are more powerful than you perhaps know. Your testimony, your story that brings the Bible to life in, uh, in our day, as people are like, does God really impact people's lives the same way? Yes. How do you know that? Well, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you how I'm different because of what Jesus Christ has done in my life. This man, he went and he did that. Now, that man, I should say. This is a different man. This is a man who is deaf and has the inability uh, to speak clearly. And verse 33 or 2, we saw that they brought the people, they brought, the people brought this man to him. Now, notice verse 33, it says, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and after spitting, touched the man's tongue. First point that I, I see there is the way that Jesus ministers. It's so sweet. This is such a sweet story. Jesus, notice it says, he takes the man aside from the crowd. And throughout this entire encounter, you're going to see that about the Lord and the way he deals with this man. He deals with him in a very tender and a very gentle way. Jesus doesn't see this man as another case. All right, got another case. You know, jot it down in the notepad here. This is the one about the guy, the deaf guy. Uh, with the inability to speak. This isn't just one more story, one more account, one more case. This is an individual. And Jesus takes this individual aside. As I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about when I was a school teacher. And, and when I was most effective as a school teacher is when I engaged in the life of the individual students. Now, I had something like 120 kids or something like that scattered throughout the day. That's a lot of people or whatever. And pretty soon it can just become, hello, masses, you know, and you speak to the masses. You don't really have any relationship, any interaction with the students. But the students you were able to have the biggest impact are those that you took a one-on-one -on -one situation with. And a little burst of time. Teachers, you know that, right? There's a lot of us here that are teachers here. And I think about life, how life can be, ministry in particular, it can become the situation, you just reach out to the masses. Jesus reaches out to the individual even with the masses around them. 
So very, very important. He pulls this guy aside. He deals with him one-on-one. And then it goes on, it says, that he puts his fingers into the man's ears, or his ears, it says. And then he spits and he touches the man's tongue. And then in verse 34, that he looks up to heaven and he sighs. What is going on here? Much like the other passage where Jesus is calling a lady a dog or whatever. Like, what is going on here as we look at this? Don't read too quickly here. I'm going to suggest to you this. I'm going to suggest to you Jesus is talking, quote unquote, to this man. Now, the guy can't hear the words that Jesus says. The guy can't speak clearly back words to the Lord. And so what does Jesus do? He talks to him by putting his fingers in the man's ears, acknowledging you can't hear anything, can you? And then he puts his finger, I don't know what the spitting part is, but he puts his finger on the man's tongue. And he says, and your tongue doesn't work the way that it it should, does it? And then he looks up into the heavens. And I think that what Jesus is saying in that instance there, he's saying, you've prayed many a prayer, haven't you? And you've been left disappointed. Not answered again. And Jesus is talking with this particular fellow here. He lovingly ministers to this individual man who can't hear and can't speak and has, has had his prayers go unanswered. Isaiah the prophet, he prophesied about 800 years earlier, 700 years earlier, about a day like this. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 35. It says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, we've seen that, and the ears of the deaf, the deaf excuse me, will be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer And the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's speaking of the day of the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus just gave his community a glimpse of that glorious day uh, in the millennial kingdom. And he gave a glimpse of that as the Messiah was working. And Mark says that day has been fulfilled. Verse 34, looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed, said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened, And the man's ears were open, and the man's tongue was released, and he began to speak plainly. 36, Jesus charged them, tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Again, as we've noticed numerous times already in our study, Jesus wasn't interested in being a wonder worker, a miracle worker, that would draw all these crowds to himself here. And so he said, let's just keep this to ourselves. Now I get it. I get people being excited that my friend has been healed. I get the man being excited, running and telling everyone here. It says they they said it more zealously. Jesus is always ready to minister to the needs of people, but his primary mission was to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, that there is salvation and forgiveness of sin. Verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure, and they said he has done all things well, that he makes even the deaf to hear, and the mute to speak. Amen? What a sweet Jesus, isn't he? That we have. I, I hope you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, that you know him personally and not some distant relationship. You know, I grew up in Christianity. You know, I went to Catholic school for 12 years and went to Catholic church and all those kinds of things. I grew up, I knew the things of Christianity, but I'll be totally honest with you. Until about the age of 17, I only knew about Jesus Christ. I could answer the test and I could tell the stories and things like that, but I only knew about Jesus Christ. And it was when I began to dig into the word of God, someone invited me to a youth group Bible study. 
And I began to look into these things and consider these things. I think we studied the Gospels one particular summer. And I began to discover that I knew about Jesus, but I didn't actually know Jesus. I came into relationship with him. My sins were forgiven. And for 30-some years now, I've been trying to walk with him in a personal relationship with him. I want to encourage you, if you do not yet have a relationship like that with him, you just sort of know a lot about him. You could pass a lot of tests and quizzes and things like that, and you could get ribbons and stuff. You need to go deeper, and you need to discover him in an intimacy of relationship. If you've never done that, talk to the person who brought you here. They'll explain it further, and if they feel they can't, come on up front. We'll talk with you. Some of the leaders will be up here afterwards, and we'll help you get started in an intimate relationship with him. Amen? Amen. The Lord is good. Do you agree? Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.